Hello and welcome to episode 28 of Celluloid Junkies. I am Luke Kane and I am coming to you from the room above the garage of a crumbling Hollywood mansion. I'm joined as always by my wonderful co-host in the dark, Damien Heath. Damien. Hello, how are you all going? Very well. This is our first uh, remote record of the show. Hopefully it sounds good. Yeah, I I think it'll be all right. Um, Are you missing seeing me though? Are you missing my scent? (laughs) Yeah, I sent you a text message this morning that said I can't wait to hear your lovely voice. I know, anyone would think we were lovers. But we're not. I mean, we were. We used to date. But that's in the past. It didn't really work out. (laughs) In this episode, we're going to be discussing a classic film that pushes the medium beyond the popular arts into excellence. I'm talking about Billy Wilder's cynical, lurid masterpiece, Sunset Boulevard. Hedda Harper speaking. I'm talking from the bedroom of Norma Desmond. Don't bother with a rewrite, man. Take this direct. Ready? as day breaks over the murder house. Yes, you'll read the big black headlines about Norma Desmond and this Hollywood scandal. But you'll never read the true story about the rest of us who were part of it. Me, for instance, Joe Gillis, a promising young writer from Dayton, Ohio. And Betty, that nice kid I met at a Hollywood party who knew nothing about me, but knew what she wanted. Don't you love Artie? Of course I love him. I always will. I'm just not in love with him anymore. What happened? You did? Well, we should have lived happily ever after, like they do in the movies. But this was different, because this is a Hollywood story about the people who make the movies. The little ones that you never hear of, like Betty and me. The great ones, like Cecil B. DeMille. All those who knew Norma Desmond, a strange woman who left her mark on all of us, who crossed her path. Has it ever occurred to you that I may have a life of my own? That there there may be some girl that I'm crazy about? Who? Some car hop or dress extra? What I'm trying to say is that I'm all wrong for you. You want a Valentino, somebody with polo ponies, a big shot. What you're trying to say is you don't want me to love you. Say it. Say it. Gloria Swanson, one of the great personalities of this generation in a role that comes to an actress once in a lifetime. Rising to the heights, William Holden creates a startling portrayal. And a new star is born in Sunset Boulevard, Miss Nancy Olson. Joe? Where are you? What's this all about? Why don't you come out and see for yourself? The address is 10,086 Sunset Boulevard. Yes, come out to see for yourself the film that reaches a new milestone of dramatic daring. The film that every critic says is a giant among motion pictures. Screen star Mary Pickford once said, It would have been more logical if silent pictures had grown out of the talkies instead of the other way around. A sentiment echoed by many film historians in the years since. 
Sound may have brought cinema to mainstream audiences, but it also made it easier for screenwriters to be lazy, with expositional dialogue to explain plot, ambient noise to set tone, and score to elicit immediate emotional responses. For many, the silent film period that began in 1913 and gave rise to films like Griffith's Intolerance, Dry as the Passion of Joan of Arc and Murnau's Sunrise remain unmatched in terms of cinematic storytelling. But when sound technology arrived in 1927, silent films soon became curios from a bygone age. Screen stars scrambled to adapt to the new industry standard. Some transitioned, many did not. Over the next 20 years, movies exploded into the global market, making kings out of its players, a time known as the golden age of Hollywood. Austrian-born screenwriter Billy Wilder was one such player. He immigrated to the US in 1934, fleeing Nazi occupation. With writing partner Charles Brackett, he quickly made a name for himself, penning a series of well-received films for heavyweight directors like Howard Hawks. Wilder set his mind to directing his own work. He made a series of films in the early 40s, including Double Indemnity, The Lost Weekend and Foreign Affair, which were celebrated for their dark wit and social awareness. In 1948, Wilder and Brackett set to work writing their next film, a comedy about a once famous silent star struggling to revive her career. But the project stagnated. They had an idea, but no story. Enter Donald Marshman Jr., an editorial researcher for Life magazine. He suggested pairing their tragic star with a down-on-his-luck writer, paving the way for the macabre love triangle that would ultimately become the central conflict of the narrative. What evolved was a film not just for Hollywood, but about it. A gothic expose, framed around a toxic relationship between a downtrodden screenwriter and an ageing screen star planning her implausible comeback. A kind of only-in-Hollywood tale set against a town famous for bright lights and manufactured dreams. Accounts vary as to how Gloria Swanson came to be Norma Desmond. Wilder wanted a real star from the silent age and considered Mae West, Norma Shearer, Mary Pickford and Paula Negri before George Cougar threw Swanson's name into the ring. Wilder would later claim he considered nobody else, and early versions of his screenplays seem to corroborate this. Still, many actresses turned it down out of hand. Norma Desmond might have been fascinating, but she was a grotesque, and in an industry where a woman's desirability was her only currency, Wilder didn't have actresses breaking down his door. Swanson was a major star in the 20s, but had struggled to make the transition into talking films, she moved to New York City in the 30s, where she received steady work in radio and on stage. When asked to audition for Sunset, she balked. What the hell do you have me do a test for, she spat at Wilder over the phone. You want to see if I'm alive, do you? George Cooker talked her into testing. Recalling Swanson's reading years later, Wilder knew he had something special. Now we had a picture, he said. For the part of Joe Gillis, Montgomery Clift was hired, a rising star with piercing blue eyes who'd recently made a splash in William Wyler's The Heiress. Two weeks before principal photography, he backed out. He told Wilder he didn't feel he could be convincing, making love to a woman twice his age. It was an odd excuse to give, given that Clift, a latent homosexual, was at the time involved with a woman 16 years his senior, singer Libby Holman. Wilder was in a bind. Gene Kelly was unavailable. Fred McMurray turned him down flat. Finally, he came upon contract player William Holden. A man of swarthy good looks and robust masculine energy, Holden's career began promisingly when in 1939 he won the lead role in Golden Boy, but quickly fizzled once the studio cast him as generic heartthrobs in a series of forgettable films. 
He left Hollywood in 1942 to serve in World War II and by 1949 was in the process of re-establishing his career. He eagerly accepted the part of Joe for half of Cliff's $60,000 salary. Holden was older than Clift, and Wilder was concerned that he didn't look young enough next to Swanson. He suggested aging Swanson with makeup and lighting, but she refused, arguing that Norma would never let herself become haggard. Instead, his production team focused on shaving a few years off Holden. When the cameras began rolling on April 18, 1949, only two-thirds of the script had been written. Nobody, not even Wilder, had a clear idea of how Joe ended up in the pool. Wilder would shoot during the day, then he and Brackett would continue writing at night. The atmosphere on set was one of lively camaraderie. Wilder deliberately left us on our own, Swanson said, made us dig into ourselves, knowing full well that such a script, about Hollywood's excesses and neuroses, was bound to give the people acting in it healthy doubts about the material and themselves. In a rare example of life not imitating art, Swanson and Holden got along well. He was brilliant in our picture and I adored him, she would later reflect. But according to Nancy Olsen, who plays Betty Schaefer, it was Swanson herself who worked the hardest. Gloria believed in the film more than anyone else she later remembered. To emphasise the film's look behind the curtain feel, Wilder used actual Hollywood locations and peppered the movie with industry insiders in bit parts, including Cecil B. DeMille, Buster Keaton and Hedda Hopper. Columnist Luella Parsons was also offered a part, but she refused to go anywhere near the set if her famed rival was involved. Hedda would later remark, Luella and I have been offered a fistful of money to appear on radio and in pictures together. I always accept, she always declines. I appeared in Sunset Boulevard and for months she didn't mention the picture or the name of its star in her column. For the role of Max, Norma Desmond's loyal butler and former husband director, Wilder cast Eric von Stroheim, a preeminent silent film director who'd worked with Swanson on Queen Kelly in 1929, a silent film that was shut down after Stroheim's perfectionism saw it go massively over budget. It was never released in the States. The small section of it shown in the movie screening scene in Sunset Boulevard, reportedly at Stroheim's request, was the first time American audiences caught a glimpse of this film which is now regarded as a classic. Wilder knew the brass at Paramount would object to a screenplay that was essentially a poisoned pen letter aimed at their industry, so to keep them at bay, he told them his film was an adaptation of a story called A Can of Beans. Luckily, Wilder carried enough clout with the studio not to be carefully watched. But Paramount wasn't his only problem. In 1949, all screenplays required submission and approval from head of the production code, Joseph Breen. Wilder knew the carnal dynamic between Joe and Norma would ruffle the censor's feathers, so he sent through pages in drips and drabs, hoping to dull the overall effect of the material. Breen wasn't so easily misled. In a letter to Paramount, he remarked, The most recent of this material seems to indicate the introduction of a sex affair between Gillis and Norma Desmond, which was not present in the earlier material. Whether or not this story will carry a sex affair, we cannot say. However, it seems to us at this point that there is no indication of a voice for morality by which the sex affair would be condemned, nor does there appear to be compensating moral values for the sin. Luckily for Wilder, the production office had no problem with putting devious men, promiscuous women and homosexuals on the screen as long as they were dead by the final frame. Like so many before him, Wilder would appease the censors with a violent, nihilistic ending. The irony wasn't lost on a filmmaker famous for his misanthropic wit. Shooting wrapped in mid-June, the delayed release and mixed reception of Sunset Boulevard is as calamitous as the production itself, but more on that later. What I can tell you is that like most masterpieces, it took time for the film to rise above its contemporaries as a masterstroke in cinematic invention. 
After the film, Wilder and Brackett parted ways, ending their 12-year collaboration on a high. Wilder would continue to thrive in Hollywood, helming classics like Sabrina, Some Like It Hot and The Apartment. William Holden became a household name and appeared in three more Wilder films, but Sunset Boulevard's lasting legacy is the drowning conviction of its troubled star, brought to life with mesmeric intensity by Gloria Swanson. Swanson may have outlived Holden, but not the shadow of Norma Desmond. Funny, intelligent and soft-spoken, with an interest in writing, sculpting and health foods, Swanson was by most accounts the opposite of Norma Desmond. After making three middling films, she grew tired of turning down offers playing weak imitations of her role in Sunset Boulevard, and returned to a life outside the harsh glare of Hollywood. But the role that had hampered her career in life granted her immortality in death. Unlike many of her peers who had long since faded into obscurity, Norma Desmond's indelible image has risen to the plane of iconography. Her wide-eyed expression and drawn-back mouth, vivid in its madness, is summoned time and time again with one indelible if often misquoted line. Alright Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Seventy years may have passed, but a lifetime has only been good to Wilder's caustic tale of desire, image, obsession, and madness. So Damien, what did you think of, uh, of Sunset Boulevard? What's your general thoughts? Um, well, my favourite part of Sunset Boulevard is the sex affair. <laughs> Such a prudish way to put it, isn't it? Like, the sex affair. It sounds like, you know, it's been ripped from a tabloid magazine. I can't believe that one person in the system who wasn't even part of the studio or any studio had so much power, could wield so much power to try to influence decisions in films by every studio by any film that was going to hit cinemas that the the whole industry was so intertwined that there was all of these studios who essentially owned all of these stars and all of these directors had them working for them on contracts who would then submit a film somebody would have an opinion about it it would get changed it would get released to theaters then that were obviously also working in that same industry so uh, and oftentimes, I think it was the studios that owned the theatres in that time. So it was such a, you know, really insular kind of protected industry um, that so few people had power in, which is, I guess, why you see in the 1940s, 1930s and 1940s, things like Betty Davis coming out against Warner Brothers and saying, I want better pictures and I want more money. Because you really needed that kind of stuff to happen. And I think it was early in the 1950s that the code was pretty much scrapped. I mean, I hadn't seen Sunset Boulevard in such a long time prior to watching it for this episode, and it's always such a pleasure to come back to. Firstly, I had remembered the film being a lot darker than it is, um, particularly in its settings, that so much more of it happened in these dark rooms in this big, dark mansion. But there's a lot of brightness and energy to it, especially in the scenes where Joe is away from Norma, and especially at the beginning of the film prior to their meeting. And I've always loved Billy Wilder, and I think he's made some absolutely sensational films, my favourite of which have always, has always been Double Indemnity. And I'm more drawn to the crime and the noir than I am to the comedy of his later films. But I think Sunset Boulevard really kind of straddles the line between those genres. Um, it definitely leans towards noir, but it has elements of the comedy that would come later as well. Yeah, um, I'm the same. It's... Sunset Boulevard's my favourite Billy Wilder film. It's actually uh, in my top 20 films of all time. 
and has been for years, I think it has a hypnotic effect on the viewer. I think the film is almost like dark voodoo. The minute that you put it on, it's just so immersive and so special and so unique. The cadence and the rhythm of it are perfect. What a what a sensational year, and I know we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but what a sensational year to get Double Indemnity and All About Eve. Yes. With these massive stars playing a very kind of similar thematic content played entirely differently. Yeah, and I mean, there were there are strange similarities. I mean, um, both Mankiewicz and Wilder wrote their own screenplays and they were ex- extremely literate writers. Mm. And we have obviously the aging diva in Betty Davis and Gloria Swanson. And we have both films being about the kind of behind the curtain inner workings of one's the theatre, one's the the studio system and, and the film industry. And two films which have had an afterlife and have continued, you know, they continue to be talked about films and, and films that are seen from that era. Otto Friedrich, who wrote the book City of Nets, A Portrait of Hollywood in the 1940s, he said, Real Wilder movies were hard and cynical, dedicated to the principle that every man had its price and every woman too. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't think in Sunset Boulevard it takes long to realise that that relationship is doomed, does it? And it's so similar to how you feel when you watch Double Indemnity. From the start of Sunset Boulevard, there's a few things that are made very distinctly clear. Um, First, Joe is in need of financial help and he sees an opportunity. Secondly, Norma is this eccentric loner with mountains of money and nobody or nothing to spend it on. So in that respect, it's a match made in heaven for both of them. And the opportunity that he sees is this absurd screenplay that has no future and even less future when it's made clear that Norma will retain some kind of creative control over Joe by telling him to put back in scenes that he's excised. So he continues to work and by doing so, he kind of accepts that this creative endeavour has no real future. So the setup is there for a complete and total failure artistically and that's not even mentioning that the romantic aside is also never going to work for a number of reasons. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, it, it's um, purely transactional, this relationship. You know, it's basically she's just wielding her resources to solicit sex from him and also um, to have a proper Hollywood writer feed her delusion that she's going to write a screenplay that's going to culminate in her her amazing, fantastic return, not come back, return. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the remainder of the film is basically Norma buying off Joe his loyalty and his love and his creative mind. And while Joe initially struggles with the ethics of this and ultimately he ultimately accepts that it's in his best interest to stay in this situation. Do you think um, Norma is as accountable for her actions as Joe? Sometimes I guess when you get to somebody of a certain age, you excuse a little bit the actions that have become a part of them. And Norma... I think, how many ex-husbands does she have? Three or five? I think she has three in the movie. And I think Gloria Swanson at the time had five. It's quite clear that when she's done with someone, she casts them aside. And she always retains this power in any kind of relationship that she has. And that's even seen when she goes to Paramount and she says to the guy, well, you'd better let me in. Without Paramount, without me, there would be no Paramount Studios. So the power that she wields, or at least that she thinks she wields, and at one time did wield, is very great. So I think that she's just doing what she would be doing 
back 20 years ago and that brought great success for everybody. I don't think she's aware that Salome is never going to be made and so she thinks there is a future in this creative endeavour but I think Joe is very aware that it's never going to be made. Obviously there was, you know, Norma's lived most of her life as a narcissist, as uh, someone who's bought into her own myth to a degree. At what point does that change to psychosis? I think there is an element of fantasy in her life. I think maybe she knows a few things. I think maybe she knows that she doesn't have all of these adoring fans, but then maybe she doesn't. It's, it's, it's difficult to say. I mean, you've got to read it at face value um, while you're watching the movie. And I guess she does descend into this madness that even in the last shot, she thinks her house is a film studio. The cameras have arrived. They have. Tell Mr. DeMille I'll be on the set at once. What is this? Well, it's one way to get her downstairs. Mm-hmm. Let's have the car right outside. Okay? Everything will be ready, madame. Thank you, Max. You'll pardon me, gentlemen, but I must get ready for my scene. I tend to think Joe's deception is more conscious than Norma's, but, I mean, you know, the other thing is we're hearing his voiceover and we actually hear him make the decision to take advantage of her and exploit her. You remember the movie Carol, Todd Haynes' Carol? Mm-hmm. Do you remember Sunset Boulevard in that movie? No. It's very early on in the film and it's Rooney Mara is in a projection room with her boyfriend and a bunch of their friends and they're screening Sunset Boulevard and one of the characters in the film is a boy named Donnie and he's the projectionist and he's watching it with a notebook and when Therese asks him what he's doing he says he's charting the correlation between what the characters say and how they really feel. That's really good. And I thought that this movie's perfect for that because both of them are so deceptive. Even Norma, one of the first questions she asks Joe and she asks it so off the cuff is if he's married. But of course, when you think back on that question halfway through the film, you wonder if there was another reason that she was asking him that, that you just didn't think of because she very carefully layered it into this, oh, how are we going to work out the logistics of us working on this script together? When were you born? I mean, what sign of the Zodiac? I don't know. What month? December, 21st. Sagittarius. I like Sagittarians. You can trust them. Thank you. I want you to do this work. Me? I'm busy. I just finished a script and I'm doing another assignment. I don't care. You know, I'm uh, pretty expensive. I get 500 a week. I wouldn't worry about money. I'll make it worth your while. Maybe I'd better take the rest of the script home and read it. Oh, no, I couldn't let it out of my house. You'll have to finish it here. Well, it's getting kind of late. Are you married, Mr... Name is Gillis. Single. Where do you live? Hollywood. Aldonito Apartments. There's something wrong with your car, you said. There sure is. Why shouldn't you stay here? Look, I'll come back early tomorrow. Nonsense. There's a room over the garage. Max will take you there. So I don't think she's totally blameless. No, I don't think either of them are blameless. I think if you had told this story from Norma's perspective rather than Joe's, if you were in Norma's head with the voiceovers instead of Joe, then you would have a lot less sympathy for Joe. 
So the voiceover gives you this feeling of acquaintance with Joe that you don't necessarily get with Norma. And so that helps you to understand his motives. And, uh, you know, anybody who's lived paycheck to paycheck, who's, you know, thought of quitting a dream to just go back to their regular job that they don't have any kind of passion about would understand where Joe is coming from. Norma doesn't have that. So I think the reason that it's told from Joe's perspective is to obviously make you feel a little bit better about him as well because what he's doing is using Norma. Look, it's a mixed bag because Joe's the one person who says, tell her the truth about Salome. You know, tell her the truth. Max, who returns and says, it's my job that she never finds out the truth, he thinks he's doing the right thing as well. What about the studio? What about Demille? He was trying to spare your feelings. The studio only wanted to rent your car. Wanted what? DeMille didn't have the heart to tell you. None of us has had the heart. That's a lie. They want me. I get letters every day. You tell her, Max. Come on, do her that favor. Tell her there isn't going to be any picture. There aren't any fan letters except the ones you write. That isn't true. Max! Madame is the greatest star of them all. Yeah, Max is an interesting one. Did you read any trivia about Max that he had a, he suggested a scene that he really wanted to shoot for the movie, which involved him washing out Norma Desmond's underwear? No. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Max is very put upon. He's a very busy man. What do we think about the monkey? I don't think too much about the monkey, um, but it's definitely a kind of black comedic addition to the movie. To have this monkey who's the closest thing to her that that passes away and is given an opulent funeral. I want the coffin to be white and I want it specially lined with satin. White or deep pink. Maybe red. Bright flaming red. Yeah, but I mean, Joe arrives the same day that the monkey is buried. So Joe's the new monkey. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's a pretty ominous warning to Joe because, you know, his first night in the house, he watches Norma and Max bury the monkey casket in this sort of very, very bizarre gothic ritual, unaware that he himself will be in a casket by the end of the film at, you know, at Norma's hand. The idea of Joe replacing the monkey tells us that he's going to be dehumanized and he's going to be possessed and that what is required of him is not going to take much talent or skill, that an ape can do it. Well, certainly if you're retaining your creative control and just telling someone to type into a typewriter, an ape could do it. That's the famous line about monkeys, isn't it? Put 20 monkeys in a room. And like you said, Joe's not really allowed to make any meaningful changes to Solome. None at all. The only thing he really does is screw Norma. (laughs) Yeah. And indulge Norma's fantasies about this renewed life she's going to have. But that's all he's allowed to do. When he tries to do something that involves his talent as a writer, he's shot down. I love that scene when she's out buying him clothes and he says, no, I don't want this jacket. And then the guy leans in and says, well, if she's paying, why not get this one? And the next scene, of course, he has the expensive jacket. Just to go back to the monkey, I have to tell you this. I don't know, you may have seen this. But Wilder made many innuendos to Gloria Swanson that Norma was screwing the monkey. According to Sam Staggs, author of Close Up on Sunset Boulevard, for the scene where the monkey's paw flops out from under the sheet, he would say to Swanson, well, there goes your last lover. You wore him out. At one point, he apparently went too far and said to Swanson, now one more time, Gloria, and show us how you feel. After all, Norma Desmond was fucking the monkey. Sam Staggs writes in his book, at that, 
Gloria Swanson's smile vanished and her face froze into a look of stunned horror. Wilder would repeat many times over the years that there was no question Norma and the monkey were having sex. In an interview in the 80s, he said, Somebody asked me recently if that monkey really was the ex-lover of Norma Desmond and if William Holden took its place. I said, yes, of course, that's exactly right. And look, I was very discreet. I used a little chimpanzee and not a huge orangutan. You know, in the research for this, and I'm sure for you as well, uh, when we looked at Fritz Lung's M, we found that Fritz Lung was a really great storyteller about his personal life. And Billy Wilder had that same reputation that you couldn't really believe what he was saying a lot of the time. I mean, this is pretty consistent. It's not only consistent with him as sort of someone who did put a lot of misanthropic subtext into his films and his writings, but he was saying it on set and he was saying it for 50 years after the film came out. Hmm. And I think there's enough clues and enough implications in the story and in the film for you to conclude that his intention in this instance was to suggest through very cloaked means that Norma was having some sort of bestial relationship with the monkey. I don't think it's purely symbolic. I guess you can view the film without that as well, because I certainly did. You just need a more perverse mind, Damien. If it, look, if he'd made it a little bit clearer, um, that would have, I would have been happy with that. I hope you realize, Norma, that scripts don't sell on astrologers' charts. I'm not just selling the script, I'm selling me. DeMille always said I was his greatest star. When did he say it, Norma? All right, it was quite a few years ago. But the point is, I never looked better in my life. You know why? Because I've never been as happy in my life. I have to ask you, what do you think of Gloria Swanson in this movie? Because I think... A lot of people would watch this film now and say the performance is very antiquated and it's from an old school of Hollywood and it isn't quite convincing. You know, we've watched a lot of old Hollywood films, so we know that when something is better than something else, and I think Gloria Swanson, she runs the whole gamut of emotions but also skills. Her performance is amazing. I think the melodramatic moments, yes, you could say, well, that's typical Hollywood in the 40s and the 50s and the 30s, 40s, 50s. But at the same time, Gloria Swanson is playing a role of a character who acted in the 20s, was big in the 20s. So she draws upon what she knows, what made her successful. This is part of who she is. And I think that you have to take that into account when you're watching the performance of Gloria Swanson. I think she's done a great job Uh, melding those two things into something that is believable for that person. She's got this history that makes up who she is in the present. Until you get to Marlon Brando in Streetcar Named Desire on the waterfront, once you get to those few movies, which are all in about four four, four or five years, you don't have a different style of acting. You have that very stagey theatrical acting. Gloria Swanson's performance is very avant garde. I think you watch it for something other than realism. And I think you appreciate it for something other than realism, even though she has a lot of scenes that are quiet and perfectly fine and, you know, perfectly realistic. But when she does get bigger, I think that that's really why you watch it. You watch it for those moments because those moments she has so much intensity, so much passion and so much energy. And it's a thrill. And I mean, that was the reason you watched Betty Davis and Joan Crawford as well, because you could just feel that energy bristling on on the screen. I think if you look at this film against something like The Favourite, you've got these two very powerful older women who have people who are subservient to them in a way, both in just general life ways, but also sexually. And a little bit of madness creeping in. 
I guess quite similar to an extent, probably a little bit more melodramatic in Sunset Boulevard, like when she cuts her wrists and everything, slits her wrists. And I think you look at Olivia Coleman and you say, well, she was probably given a little bit more time to make herself empathetic when she had those moments. Would you agree that there's parallels between those movies? Absolutely. I think it's a really interesting parallel, one I hadn't considered, but you're absolutely right. There it was again. That room of hers, all satin and ruffles. And that bed like a gilded rowboat. The perfect setting for a silent movie queen. Poor devil. Still waving proudly to a parade which had long since passed her by. It was at her New Year's party that I found out how she felt about me. Maybe I'd been an idiot not to have sensed it was coming. That sad, embarrassing revelation. We have to consider the situation that we were in and why Wilder was given permission to make this film. Um, His films in the 1940s would never be mistaken for bright, happy pictures. So it was probably very clear what Paramount was getting when they greenlit this. And Double Indemnity is one of the bleakest and one of the best noir films. And it's similarly voiced over by a man who's in the throes of death this time just before it comes, which it presumably doesn't. And The Lost Weekend was this blistering drama about alcoholism that ends with a thwarted suicide attempt. But Double Indemnity was nominated for Best Picture and The Lost Weekend won that award. So Wilder was clearly a filmmaker who was very good at his craft. And he did also have a history of clashing with censors. So Double Indemnity and The Lost Weekend were two films that came under fire. So Wilder developed this method of filmmaking that included starting production while the screenplay was unfinished and adjusting the screenplay during shooting. And it's not like he didn't have much of an idea of where the story was going to go. He could have probably told the censors exactly where these stories were going to go at any given time during filmmaking. But as he was also the writer, these changes were easy enough to make during the shoot. And there was this element of privacy about Sunset Boulevard in the writing and the test screenings. And as you say, it was produced under the name A Can of Beans for a short while. So I think Wilder probably knew that this film, being based on the industry in which it was made, would probably have a lot of interested sets of eyes on it. Another thing that you have to think about is where America was at this time because you know we're moving forward into the 50s when mccarthyism and cold war tensions were going to usher in this new era of social conservatism you know this is the time where you get the image of the aproned woman with perfectly coiffed hair fussing over a stove while the husband comes home from work in a suit and tie and hollywood had a very very active publicity machine that worked overtime to give the impression that the industry was a squeaky clean paragon of wholesome American values. You know, this was the time of stars like Shirley Temple and Judy Garland and Doris Day. We had scripted interviews with actors and actresses where they were all just saying the loveliest things and everything was so nice and so prim and proper. Had, you know, Christmas at home with Joan Crawford with, you know, her two little children that were all in beautiful buttoned up little dresses. And Sunset Boulevard is pretty audacious film, given that that was the message that Hollywood was investing so much money in sending out. You know, Wilder makes this movie that paints Hollywood as, you know, this just cesspool of moral corruptibility. It was a town of great mystery and great intrigue, and that's part of the reason for the film's success as well. It's, um, it's got this tabloid-esque behind-the-scenes reputation. 
you hear about things in the news. I mean, even to the point of putting Hedda Hopper in the film. She was the gossip columnist for the Los Angeles Times at the time, and she had a readership of about 35 million in the 1940s. So she was very well known in that city, in that industry, and outside of it. And I love that Sunset Boulevard, by putting her in the movie, having her make that bedside phone call, it kind of owned the idea that this was an expose. Yeah, and I think Wilder was very clever with actually involving so many Hollywood heavyweights into the film, actually making them part of the process so that there wasn't going to be... He had a lot of supporters on the ground, you know, inside the industry who were going to advocate for the film because they were part of it. Was there any history between Wilder and DeMille? I know there was history between, obviously, Swanson and DeMille and Swanson and Von Stroheim. There was in terms of they liked each other. Apparently, when Wilder shot... Cecil B. DeMille scenes and Cecil B. DeMille really he goes beyond a cameo he's a he's a supporting character he has lines of dialogue and he has to he's the only one in the film who actually shows any real sympathy and and warmth for Norma and for her predicament while at the same time balancing that by saying you know you know make sure she's not let in here again essentially and apparently when they shot their scenes you know wilder would say okay again and demille was like yeah look i'm sorry i didn't do that very well and he was you know they they liked each other they respected each other i think wilder probably didn't particularly love demille's films and wasn't really interested in making those sorts of films and they're markedly different Look, for every Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard, there is a Cecil B. DeMille, so someone who has retained that success over the years. And we see that in the movie, and we're focusing on one story and one story only. And it's reflected in many true stories of Hollywood, obviously. You know, Mary Pickford, D.W. Griffith, and so many others. But it's also not representative of all the true stories. The focus of the movie is on Joe and Norma, and they are two people who've been corrupted by it. Their psychopathology, their problems can't be separated from their environment. Joe got into Hollywood with big dreams. You know, he always wanted a pool. He ends up in one. Norma is starved of love (laughs) and driven to murder and madness. Both are victims of their careers and of their ambition. With them, with Joe and Norma, I think Wilder suggests that success by any means, however degrading or immoral, is rewarded, and that the industry not only encourages but engenders that immorality. And it's fair to say that both would have probably found happiness in any other industry. Norma can't get past what she used to be because the height was the heights were so high the joys were so bountiful and joe can't help but look at norma and wonder what can she do to help me how can i exploit her just a couple of examples of moments in the film that are kind of indictments on hollywood so joe visits sheldrake who he described as a good producer at paramount who has a set of ulcers to prove it which would suggest that to be a, a good person in this industry, you, you, pay a, you pay the price in terms of, you know, your health. I love the line, actresses so young, they still believed the guys in the casting offices. That line predates Weinstein by 50 years, which is troubling. There are plenty of stories out now about actresses, how they got roles back then. You know, Joan Crawford, I think, is one of them, isn't she? She has had that reputation. Betty Davis said she slept her way to the top, and Joan Crawford said, at least I didn't sleep my way to the middle. <laughs> Oh, that's true. Also, I love that Sheldrake pretty much pitched a league of their own 45 years early. 
<laughs> that was funny. <laughs> yeah, that is true. I didn't think of that. <laughs> Betty at one point says to Joe, I'd always heard you had some talent. And Joe says, that was last year. This year I'm trying to earn a living. That's one of my favorite quotes in the film. Yeah. So, you know, this suggests Hollywood does not nurture talent as much as it invests in derivative work with a proven return on investment. And even the scene where DeMille finds out the reason Paramount has been calling Norma to ask to rent her car as a prop for a Bing Crosby film is an example of just how insensitive and tone deaf the industry can be. It's ironic because they went out of their way to rent that car for Sunset Boulevard as well. In today's dollars, that was worth some ridiculous sum of money, 300 and something thousand dollars, that car that they rented for this movie and only six or eight of them were available in the United States. And I mean, that phone call and that that discovery that that's why they're ringing Norma, it's not even intentionally cruel. No, that's right. If only she'd returned the call. But even then she would have been heartbroken. Even when the industry isn't trying, it can be a nasty industry. Don't hate me, Joe. I did because I need you. I need you as I've never needed you before. Look at me. Look at my hands. Look at my face. Look under my eyes. How can I go back to work if I'm wasting away under this torment? You don't know what I've been through these last weeks. <laughs> Gloria Swanson as Norma. I asked a question about whether or not you believe she's a precursor to the monstrous feminine that would be more pointedly exploited in the 60s. And uh, the idea that maybe she's a little bit of a Grand Dame Grenoble type character before Betty Davis hit the apex of that with whatever happened to Baby Jane. Yeah, look, I think um, definitely the word precursor is probably accurate. I don't think she's an example of that, but she's definitely a precursor to that. So you can take things from Gloria Swanson's portrayal of Norma Desmond and apply them to something like Whatever Happened to Baby Jane or Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. But she's not in that same kind of realm. She's not intentionally a grotesque no i think she's intentionally a grotesque okay i think that in the noir sense and this film is uh, to me a noir she is the film's villain but for me she's not a villain in the same sense as say edward g robinson in key largo or orson wells in touch of evil and while she perpetrates the criminal act at the end of the film, there's also the fact that she's an unfortunate loser in many ways she shares similarities in that It's a woman who's past her prime, who is viewed as someone who no longer has any sexual viability, who's throwing herself at a man that doesn't want her, finds her repulsive, but also it's a woman who's psychologically attached to her past and is living in a state of deluded nostalgia. For a retired professor of film studies, Lucy Fisher, I really liked this. She compares Norma to a vampire, describing her as technically alive, yet mired in a state of suspended animation. She also describes her final walk down the staircase as a direct and threatening advance on the audience. I think Norma is an extreme case of someone who believes in her own myth at the expense of herself, but not without reason. I mean, DeMille, Max, and even Norma give us plenty of reasons to believe in her star power. I love the line that Max says to Joe about Norma. There was a Maharaj who came all the way from Hyderabad to get one of her stockings. Later, he strangled himself with it. We know the human brain is outfitted with mechanisms that protect us from facing certain truths that might cause us to unravel. And certainly if Norma were to face reality after the heights she rose to in her youth, she'd have a breakdown. 
So she doesn't see the rats in the pool or the cobwebs in the corner. She doesn't think about the fact that the phone isn't ringing anymore. She's in a self-protective state of denial. Joe describes it beautifully when he says, She was still sleepwalking along the giddy heights of a lost career. Plain crazy when it came to that one subject, her celluloid self, the great Norma Desmond. How could she breathe in that house so crowded with Norma Desmonds? More Norma Desmonds. And still more Norma Desmonds. Another thing about the way that Gloria reacts to not getting her way is that she internalizes that anger. And that is something that's more true of women than men, just biologically. So it's very astute writing that Norma makes a suicide attempt and then uses it to manipulate Joey into returning. But the suicide attempt in this case isn't for show. This is someone who's extremely depressed and vulnerable. Hello, Mr. Sheldrake. Hello. On that basis loaded, I covered it with a two-page synopsis. Thank you. But I wouldn't bother. What's wrong with it? It's from hunger. Nothing for lad? It was just a rehash of something that wasn't very good to begin with. I'm sure you'll be glad to meet Mr. Gillis. He wrote it. This is Miss Kramer. The name is Schaefer. Betty Schaefer. Right now, I wish I could crawl in a hole and pull it in after me. If I could be of any help. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Gillis, but I just didn't think it was any good. I found it flat and trite. Exactly what kind of material do you recommend? James Joyce? Dostoevsky? I just think that picture should say a little something. Oh, one of the message kids. Just a story won't do. You'd have turned down Gone with the Wind. No, that was me. I said, who wants to see a Civil War picture? It's very, very hard to understand Norma without having Betty there as the anti-Norma. She throws a very harsh light on exactly what Norma is and what's wrong with Norma. And in a way, she's also made more pitiable by the introduction of Betty, because Betty is so easily everything Norma just isn't. Betty is young, she's attractive, she's rational, she's witty. She asserts herself without being pushy. She is ambitious without being a narcissist. She doesn't care about being famous or in the spotlight. While Norma smells of aged wood and waste, Betty smells like freshly laundered linen handkerchiefs, which is just about the weirdest compliment I've ever heard a man give a woman in a movie. Joe sets all the terms in the relationship with Betty. He constantly leaving her mid-conversation to run back to Norma. He decides when and where they'll meet to work on the script. Even during their last encounter, he doesn't leave with Betty when she asks him to. Unlike Norma, she's the ideal 1950s woman in that she's totally deferential to the man she loves and calls none of the shots. On top of that, Betty represents his creative rebirth, as we've talked about. He's excited about the screenplay he's working on with her, which is adapted from his own novel unlike his collaboration with Norma. But the principles of both relationships are the same. It's two writers where there is a romantic tension, except the experiences are antithetical. One is ideal and the other is a nightmare. Both professionally and personally. I I really like that. I think if somebody smelled like freshly laundered linen handkerchiefs, that is actually quite pleasant. Yeah, I, I think it's nice too. I think handkerchiefs have really gone out of vogue. I don't think I'd want to be with anyone who actually carried a handkerchief. Yeah, no, that's very, very old. Yeah, I, I found one in like by Harissa's bedside table the other day and I was very disturbed by it and I questioned him at length about why he had one. I didn't know you could still buy handkerchiefs apart from to put in your little pocket when you're wearing a suit. <laughs> I think he must have got given it by somebody at the nursing home that he works at. Hey, Miss Desmond! Miss Desmond! It's me, 
It's Hawkeye. Hello, Hawkeye. Let's get a good look at you. Desmond, Norma Desmond. Norma Desmond. Why, I thought she was dead. How oh, nice to see you. Welcome home, Mr. If you go into your chat in Skype, I've just sent you a list. I found a poll on IMDb that somebody had started about classic film noir villains, and I just want to give you a few names, and you can tell me where you think Swanson in Sunset Boulevard ranked among these. So the names are, uh, these are in chronological order, so Peter Laurie and M., Sydney Greenstreet in The Maltese Falcon, Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity, Rita Hayworth in The Lady from Shanghai, Edward G. Robinson in Key Largo, Orson Welles in The Third Man, Robert Mitchum in Night of the Hunter, Orson Welles in Touch of Evil, Robert Mitchum in Cape Fear, and Betty Davis in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. So including Swanson, there's 11 names there. And about where in this group do you think she rated as the greatest classic film noir villains who would you put ahead of her maybe i think she's probably ahead of key largo so you think that she rated ahead of edward g robinson yeah i find it hard because these these people are all really horrible yeah that's what a film noir villain is (laughs) well i i don't know i don't know that she's that horrible i mean and that's what i wonder as well and that's why i said that for me she's not like uh, Edward G. Robinson in Key Largo, and she's not like um, Orson Welles in Touch of Evil. She's not that evil. Well, Robert Mitchum spends 90 minutes hunting down two children so that he can kill them both for money. I mean, that's not what Norma is. I'll tell you where she rated. So Robert Mitchum in Night of the Hunter was the top-rated film noir villain, and then Peter Laurie in M, Orson Welles in Touch of Evil, Betty Davis in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and then Orson Welles in The Third Man. Okay, and then came Gloria Swanson in sixth place. Ah, oh, so she beat Barbara Stanwyck. So that means she was ahead of Robert Mitchum in Cape Fear. She was ahead of Sydney Greenstreet in The Maltese Falcon, ahead of Barbara Stanwyck in um, Double Indemnity, ahead of Rita Hayworth in Lady from Shanghai, and ahead of Edward G. Robinson in Key Largo. Oh, that's interesting. And so this poll had a total of 23 names, and I've just taken 11 that I think are probably the best examples, and Betty Davis in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. And out of those 23, she still ranked six. So that is the top six. So I'm drawing a conclusion from this that while I think she's not this kind of ideal representative of the film noir genre, by the greater public, she was definitely considered a memorable noir villain. Yes, this is Sunset Boulevard, Los Angeles, California. It's about five o'clock in the morning. That's the Homicide Squad complete with detectives and newspaper men. A murder has been reported from one of those great big houses in the 10,000 block. You'll read about it in the late editions, I'm sure. Let's talk about the original beginning to the movie. So the screenplay for Sunset Boulevard originally began in a morgue with Joe Gillis rising from the dead and relaying his story to the other corpses in the room. You know, lines like a dead man lies on a slab with an identification tag on his toe. It reads Joe Gillis. For a moment, the room is semi-dark. Then as the music takes on a more astral phase, a curious glow emanates from the sheeted corpses. The long row of tags sway from the breeze of the ventilator system. Then there's a voice that says, Don't be scared. There's a lot of us here. It's all right. 
And then he goes on to say stuff, you know, how did you happen to die? Me, I drowned. And the little boy says, so did I, I drowned right off the pier at Ocean Park. It's only bad when you try not to swallow. If you open your mouth and let it in, it doesn't hurt a little bit. I wish my folks would come and get me. And another man says, where did you drown, the ocean? He says, no, a swimming pool. Joe says, no, a swimming pool. And he says, a husky fellow like you? And Joe says, well, I had a few extra holes in me, two in the chest, one in the stomach. So that was the original opening to Sunset Boulevard, and that was routinely laughed at during test screenings, and it was later reshot in January of 1950. And I don't think it's too bad. It's kind of fun, but it definitely ramps up that dark humour, and I can see why that was changed. And apparently audiences at test screenings found that the scene kind of set the tone for the rest of the film as a black comedy rather than a noir. It's interesting that it, it was received with mocking laughter and that it almost brought down the film. I can understand it must have been very strange scene and it's hard to visualise it now that we know the film as we know the film and we know the beginning of the film and, and the beginning of Sunset Boulevard is fantastic. And apparently that piece of film, they wanted to include it on the DVD and Wilder said that he didn't have it anymore. I think he was just very embarrassed by it, very hurt by the whole thing and didn't want to dwell on it. Do you, in your release and reception, have any quotes from any stars who saw the movie? Just Louis Mayer. Oh, good. So I just wanted to tell you that they had some sort of screening where a bunch of stars went and saw the movie. And these were a couple of people that we love. So I just wanted to read you what they said. Joan Crawford said, Seeing Sunset Boulevard is a thrilling experience, which I will never forget. And Humphrey Bogart said, One of the great pictures of 1950 or any other year, Gloria Swanson's performance is brilliant and exciting. And it's interesting that he said that because he and Wilder would famously clash during the filming of Sabrina four years later. You don't care, do you? But hundreds of thousands of people will care. Oh, wake up, Norma. You'd be killing yourself to an empty house. The audience left 20 years ago. Now face it. That's a lie. They still want me. No, they don't. So there was a lot of trepidation in Hollywood about the release of Sunset Boulevard and exactly how it would paint the industry. It underwent test screenings in Illinois rather than Los Angeles for this reason, but was eventually shown in Hollywood to a select audience of studio heads and invited guests. Legend has it that MGM head Louis B. Mayer responded to Wilder with anti-Semitic comments and told him that he had disgraced the industry that made him, and that Swanson's fellow silent film star Mary Pickford was so overcome with emotion after seeing the film that she just needed to be alone. In about April of 1950, the studio began showing the film to, as the New York Times' Bosley Crowther would write, every editor and critic in town. The hype train began working as articles in newspapers and industry trades started running that same month. In particular, they hyped the return of Swanson and the look behind the scenes of the Hollywood industry. Sunset Boulevard was finally released in public on August 10, 1950 at New York's Radio City Music Hall, where it ran for seven weeks and grossed in excess of a million dollars. It performed superbly in major cities, but less so in regional areas, but managed to become the eighth highest grossing film of 1950. Other successful films at the box office in that year included comedies Father of the Bride and Annie Get Your Gun, Disney's Cinderella, Fox's All About Eve, and the top grossing film MGM's King Solomon's Mines. Shortly after the film's release, Gloria Swanson actually embarked on a train tour of 33 cities throughout the country to promote the film in a move that was very old Hollywood. Reviews for the movie were outstanding, as you'd expect. The New York Times was first on the scene thanks to the Radio City premiere season and ran a series of articles on the film. Thomas M. Pryor wrote that Sunset Boulevard is by no means a rounded story of Hollywood past and present, but it is such a clever compound of truth and legend that it seemingly speaks with great authority. 
Pryor also wrote that Swanson gave a truly magnificent impersonation of Charlie Chaplin and in an article two days later brought it up again, this time saying it was remarkable. Bosley Crowther chimed in a fortnight later with his own review, stating that after his initial viewing several months prior, it had been twisting and gnawing in my mind. He wrote that the proof of the power of its greatness is the fact that it sticks upon the mind's eye long after it has been seen and agitates restless rumination upon its mordant and haunting images. Trade magazine Variety reviewed the film soon after those April screenings, and while they had a vested interest in protecting the image of Hollywood, they still couldn't abjectly debate the merits of the film. William Brogdon wrote for the magazine that director Billy Wilder has used an iconoclastic approach that will help shatter the public's illusions and which does much to perpetuate filmland myths and idiosyncrasies. On this count, they rate a nod for daring, as well as credit for an all-around filmmaking job that is a standout. The National Board of Review in December placed the film atop its list of the year's best, just ahead of Mankiewicz's All About Eve. Swanson also won the board's award as Best Actress, but John Huston for The Asphalt Jungle pipped Wilder as director. The two best films of the year were clearly judged by the Academy in February of 1951, as All About Eve garnered 14 Oscar nominations, still a record, and Sunset Boulevard had to settle for just 11. Sunset Boulevard became just the sixth film at the time to be nominated for all four acting categories, and the fifth, fifth film to be nominated for all four acting categories as well as Best Picture. Gloria Swanson and William Holden were nominated as leads, while Eric von Stroheim was nominated as supporting actor and Nancy Olsen as supporting actress. In the 70 years since these Oscars, only 10 more films have been nominated in all of these categories. Sunset Boulevard would unfortunately become one of only three films from that list to date that failed to take home any of those acting awards, however. Holden lost out to Jose Ferrer in Serrano de Bergerac, Swanson lost out to Judy Holliday in Born Yesterday, Von Stroheim lost out to George Sanders in All About Eve, and Olsen lost out to Josephine Hull in Harvey. It's stunning to look back sometimes and note that Swanson was nominated alongside Betty Davis this year and neither won for two roles that have become so iconic and revered. The film would win three Oscars, Best Story and Screenplay, these days known as Best Original Screenplay, Best Score and Best Black and White Art Direction and Set Decoration. It would lose out on Best Film Editing, Best Black and White Cinematography to Carol Reed's 1949 British noir thriller The Third Man, which wasn't released in the United States until 1950 and was therefore eligible, Best Director uh, for All About Eve and Best Picture to All About Eve. Sunset Boulevard and All About Eve would meet again almost 40 years later, when in 1989 they were both selected among the first group of films to be inducted for preservation in the National Film Registry for being culturally, historically or aesthetically significant. Alright, quiz time? Quiz time! Do you want me to start or you start? You start. Aside from Sunset Boulevard, what were the other two films for which Gloria Swanson received Academy Award nominations? Um, Freaking hell, I don't think I know. Sadie Thompson in 1929 and The Trespasser in 1930. Well, I knew one of them. Sadie Thompson, is Joan Crawford in that? She did a version playing Sadie Thompson called Rain a few years later. Yeah. Which director once said, Norma Desmond is more famous than most famous actors? I have no idea, so I'm just going to throw a name out there. 
Um, Warren Beatty. Cameron Crowe. Cameron Crowe. Wow. He's someone you don't hear much about these days. No. <laughs> Which member of the Kennedy family did Gloria Swanson once have an affair with and what was his link to her films? Can I just read you my second question? Okay. Which well-known man did Gloria Swanson have a three-year love affair with until she discovered he had pilfered thousands from her own production company? Okay, well, you asked me that question, um, and I'll say (laughs) Joseph P. Kennedy. And now my question is, what was the link between Joseph Kennedy and Gloria Swanson in her films? Well, he um, became power of attorney of her production company and had complete control over her finances and career. He commissioned Queen Kelly and got um, Eric von Stroheim to direct it. That went horribly over budget. Then uh, Gloria Swanson found out that he had been taking thousands and thousands of her dollars and sinking the money into Queen Kelly and even to things like gifts for her. And so he left her with lots of debt. And the ironic part was she'd originally met him because he was uh, an esteemed businessman who was going to help solve some of her cash flow problems. But... Yeah, he ended up leaving her with like half a million dollars in debt. I hope that um, he had bought a new car and billed it to what was Gloria Swanson's production company at the time, because in 1927, she had formed her own production company and that she confronted him about this at a dinner that they were having with some guests. And he got up and walked out, never contacted her again. Yeah, horrible. Isn't that awful? Um, He was also the producer on The Trespasser, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award, as well as 1930s What a Widow. He ended up getting out of Hollywood just before the Depression hit and the Golden Age ended. Uh, So he ended up, like, fleecing Hollywood, (laughs) which doesn't normally happen. It's usually the reverse. Okay. Uh, Wilder's The Lost Weekend, which I know you watched uh, as research for this, it won the Academy Award for Best Picture, as well as what is now known as the Palme d'Or at Cannes. Only two other films, two, have ever achieved this feat. Name at least one of them. Um, I'm just going to take a wild guess. Moonlight. Delbert Mann's Marty from 1955 was the second, and Bong Joon-ho's Parasite from 2019 they're the only three films that have ever won Best Picture and The Palme d'Or. Hollywood folklore had it that the famed Schwab's drugstore that Gillis visits was the place where which famous actress was discovered while sipping a soda? Uh, was it Rita Hayworth? Lana Turner. Lana Turner, that's right. It's also untrue. That's not where she was discovered, but it just sort of became known that that's where it was. Hmm. Yeah, many famous people did frequent it, including Olivia de Havilland, Orson Welles, and Rita Hayworth. So after the film's release, a former Paramount employee sued Wilder for $1.4 million, saying that a story she had written about working at the studio became the basis for the story of Sunset Boulevard. What was that story called? Sunrise Boulevard. Yes! You've got it. (laughs) Um, It was called Past Performance. Oh, okay. Um, How many movies did Gloria Swanson make with DeMille? Seven. Six. Very close. Oh. Between 1919 and 1921. Okay. Gloria Swanson received three Academy Award nominations, as we've discussed. How many of those films were directed by Cecil B. DeMille? Two. None. Ah. There you go. Do you have another question? 
Yes, the exterior shots of Norma Desmond's mansion were not actually shot on Sunset Boulevard. Where were they shot? Yeah, the exterior shots, they were shot um, just a little bit south of Sunset Boulevard. I'm not accepting that answer. (laughs) Um, Let's go. uh, It's the road, like two main roads down from Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, I'm not accepting that answer either. (laughs) Um, Let's call it Santa Monica Boulevard. It's the corner of Wilshire and Crenshaw Boulevards. Yes. On Santa Monica Boulevard, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have another question? I have one more that I can ask you. Me too. Okay. Wilder and Holden work together once more. What was the name of that film? Wilder and Holden? Yes. They work together twice more. Okay. Well, name either of them. They worked together in Starlag 17 and in Sabrina. I've got Fedora. Yeah, they did. They worked together a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> You've got an extra point there. Um, I've just realised that my last question, I actually have already told you the answer to it. Okay, well, ask that. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay, let's just, call it a, let's just call it a win for you. Yeah, I'm happy with that. I just want to tell you all how happy I am to be back in the studio making a picture again. You don't know how much I've missed all of you. And I promise you I'll never desert you again. Because after Salome, we'll make another picture and another picture. You see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. All righty. Well, Damien, uh, we've reached that point in the evening. Yes, the sun is setting on our Sunset Boulevard episode. <laughs> That's terrible pun. Okay, uh, rating out of five and final thoughts. It is an easy five stars. For anybody who loves old Hollywood, it's such a fun and exciting look at those years and the impact of the switch from silent to sound, but also the industry as a whole, both at the time and you can even apply a lot of it to now. But for anybody who loves noir, it's got those elements and there's a whole bunch of twists if you're into suspense. And if you enjoy drama, there's just really great performances as well. It's so obviously a five-star film. For all the reasons that we've discussed at length, just a, a perfect film in every way. It's a film that is has that gothic visual aesthetic that makes films so exciting um, and like kiddishly exciting, but it's done with an adult story um, that gives the film complex emotional core it is the perfect blend of a film that is pure entertainment whilst also being extremely psychologically stimulating and meaningful thank you so much for joining us for another episode of celluloid junkies we really had a lot of fun looking back at sunset boulevard this month and we hope you return next time as we stay in similar territory we're going to confuse you a little bit we're going to move from billy wilder to william wyler And we're going to discuss my favourite film from my favourite actress, William Wyler's 1940 film noir, The Letter. That's so exciting. (laughs) Do you know, I've had that in like a heap of about five Blu-rays of movies that I'm planning to watch at Mum's. It's great. We'll talk about it next month. Very, very cool. Okay, great. Awesome. Well, 
Okay. Bye. Mr. DeMille shooting. You got an appointment? No appointment necessary. I'm bringing Norma Desmond. Norma who? 